Thank you for joining us today, trusting that the word of the Lord will be of benefit to you as we think through some of the challenging issues that currently exist in our world. I've been preaching a sermon series called Desecularizing Christianity, uh, returning the church basically to a sacred worldview. And the purpose of this series of biblical messages is to help us apply biblical thinking to matters that are often overtaken by secular thinkers. The reality is that most of us are very secular in our mindset. We've been raised in secular schools. We have secular friends. We watch secular media. We hear the secular messages of our world. And because of that, oftentimes, uh, even among God's people, there is a greater manifestation of secular thinking and secular responses to the challenges of our world than there is sacred thinking and sacred responses. By the way, secularism is essentially a worldview that does not acknowledge any spiritual basis. Now that does not mean that it is not without spiritual implications because there is a devil and his minions that are alive and well and will attack and utilize those that consider themselves to be otherwise spiritually neutral to accomplish his purposes. But nevertheless, secularism officially, as an ideology, chooses not to recognize the existence of God, the supremacy of divine scripture, and so forth and so on. And so what we're attempting to do, as we live as aliens and strangers, as Christians, in a largely secularized world, is we're trying to desecularize ourselves and to think and respond in a more biblical way to the challenges of our generation. Now, there have been many, many issues that we've been seeing in the news lately that we've been experiencing in our society. Notably, the COVID-19 shutdown has caused a lot of uh, thinking, a lot of responses, has generated a lot of news, and then recently, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen the, the rise in protests and riots uh, as a, a direct result to the, the unfortunate and inhumane, sad, evil uh, killing of um, George Floyd, and we mourn that but as part of this sermon series, I thought it might be helpful to put some perspective on these matters by including within my sermon series a sermon on race and nationhood. And so today I'm going to approach this partly as a teacher, communicating information, partly as a preacher, exhorting us to act differently. I expect that this will be a rather lengthy sermon because there's a lot of material to cover, but if you've spent several hours, and I suspect all of you have several hours on social media in the past few weeks, reading and considering and responding to these issues, an hour or so in God's word uh, will be a good counterbalance to that, and so I'd encourage you not to turn your televisions off, not to turn off your laptops and phones, but to track with me. And some of the things I'm going to be saying earlier on 
may not receive the necessary nuances that they deserve until later on in the message. So if you hear something earlier that sounds incomplete, I would just uh, encourage you to stick with me and uh, hopefully by the time that I'm finished, you will have received the answers to your questions. So let's start off with a question. This is a bit of teaching. Why would we want to teach or preach on this topic of race and nationhood? I've written down several reasons. Notably among them is a negative reason. So this is not why I've chosen to preach this message today, and it is this reason. It's not to virtue signal. I'm not preaching this today to virtue signal. Virtue signaling is essentially a more recent term that is used of those who express virtue through behavior or disgust, generally in response to something that is popular, something that the majority thinks needs to be addressed. But virtue signalers, while they might be strategic in capitalizing upon the current movements or moments that are taking place in our society, are generally not people whose whole lives are characterized by a concern for things like justice. So you hear a lot from them on social media about a lot of different things, but you only hear their disgust and response to issues of justice when all of a sudden there's a critical issue or a tipping point that has taken place in culture or society. Now, virtue signalers, interestingly, generally hold to the majority viewpoint. They generally don't comment on minor issues as they would consider them, they're also characterized by inconsistency. So, for example, virtue signalers will weigh in during times like this on matters of racism because it's an important topic, but it's also a popular topic right now. But you won't hear a lot from them in the day-to-day -day, uh, rhythms of their lives on things like religious persecution or the ongoing martyrdom of religious people around the world. You won't hear them stand up for issues like abortion. They will be in racial protest marches, but you will not see them out front of the hospital holding up placards calling upon the world to change its view of abortion. They do address issues like racism and gender discrimination because society feels comfortable addressing those things but they do not pay attention to the comprehensive and lengthy list of injustices that are taking place in our world today. You will see this among lay people, and sadly you will see this among pastors, who, some of whom feel a certain pressure, a certain societal urge to speak out on the current issue, but who are otherwise silent to matters of systemic injustice that are taking place in our society. I would encourage you not to pay too much attention to cherry-picking justice warriors. Rather, as we understand Scripture, comprehensive justice is biblical. I preached on this a couple of weeks ago. The issue of biblical justice. I preached on it before the current events. And these are the kind of things that the people of God should be considering on a regular basis. Basis. Now, I want to ask you a question as we start off the message today. 
And don't answer it before you think about it, but I want you to be considering this question. Do you actually believe in the authority of Scripture? Do you actually believe in the authority of Scripture? In the Word of God, let me read a couple passages for you, starting with Proverbs chapter 2, verse 9. In Proverbs chapter 2, verse 9, it says, Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity every good path. Like, well, that's, that's a good verse. But it begs the question, well, oh, how? What, what came before that? Something happened, and then the writer says, then, meaning in response to something that was said previously, you will understand righteousness and justice and equity. How is it that the people of God can possibly understand issues of justice and equity? Well, if you trail back up in the passage to the first couple of verses, here's the answer to that question. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, and then the writer continues on in those early verses of Proverbs chapter 2, to outline the benefits and blessings of, be a, of being a person that inclines their ear to understanding and who listens to the words and treasures up in his or her heart the words of Scripture. I would therefore propose to you right off the hop that you will never be a person that adequately understands issues of justice and equity. Never. If you are not more than theoretically committed to the authority of God's word. So therefore, if you have spent more time this week reading secular viewpoints, reading media viewpoints, reading sometimes absolutely godless viewpoints, reading sociological viewpoints about issues of racism and nationhood, than you have in the word of God, there will be evidence of massive ignorance and imbalance in your life. But the good news is, is you can overcome that by taking your nose and getting it into the word of God. And dwelling upon what God has written and spoken about the current issues of our day. The word of God is timeless and true. It's ever relevant. And when we get into God's word, we can be blessed by it. The second thing, why we would want to preach on a topic like this is because the reality is people are divided and confused. People want to know, what should I do? What should I say? What should I not say? What's culturally acceptable? What's going to get traction? What's going to get me in trouble? Well, fortunately, the Word of God never confuses, and its intention is to never leave us in a state of ignorance. Third, we have a clash in our society that goes beyond the immediate circumstances, but that speaks to it, and that is a clash between globalism and nationalism. Globalism is generally thought of by most secular people as the progressive model of future world government. In other words, the way to unity is to unify all of the people on earth under one global government to all agree with one overriding ethic. Nationalism is generally considered Backward, ethnocentric, 
at least mildly racist and outdated. What we're going to see in the Word of God today is globalism is reflective of the very problem that God had to address at the Tower of Babel. And nationhood is the unfortunate consequence of rebellion against God, but nevertheless, the biblical paradigm that God has established for human beings to live within in a broken and complex world. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. Getting back to Babel does not fix issues of inequality, but in fact will increase them. And I'll tell you why in a bit. Fourth, because history demands that we think about it. Various people groups throughout history, this is a historic fact, it's not debatable, have received prejudice and discrimination, some of whom have been killed because of their ethnicity or their skin tone or their language and so forth and so on. And so we need to think about this. Fifth, it's personal. It's personal. Many people are feeling, they're feeling, they're experiencing angst, a hatred, a sense of being hated. I was speaking to an acquaintance of mine uh, this week who hails originally from the Caribbean but who lives in the Toronto area who described some of the experiences he's had in his life as being kind of like PTSD. There's a certain trauma even when the particular event that may have triggered it is done and maybe is historic to his reality. There's a certain trauma, there's a certain damage that's done when a person experiences things like racism or inequality. And if we are people that love others, uh, we need to acknowledge the very personal nature of the current circumstances. Six, because discussion and truth, hear me clearly, church, is always, always important to reconciliation. Always. There's never a time when truth and discussion is set aside in some ill-guided attempt at reconciliation. Truth and discussion is always important to reconciliation. There have been many examples of genocide and racial clashes even in our lifetimes. I'll just go back 20 years or so ago, 25 years or so ago, and give you some historical examples. And if you are concerned about issues outside of Canada or North America, these should concern you to a commensurate degree to the issues that we experience in North America. But let me just remind us of what our world is like. 1995, do you remember it? 1995, the Serbs murdered 8,000 Bosnians. Just a year before that, 1994, was the Rwandan genocide where the Hutus killed some estimated 1 million Tutsis in those ethnic clashes in Africa. We know of ongoing 
multi-decade conflicts between Jews and Palestinians in the Middle East. Fast forwarding to 2003, we have the Darfur genocide in Sudan, which racked up an astonishing half million deaths and continues to be an ongoing plight and problem even up to today. In 2018, the Guji and Gideo disputes in Ethiopia led to the loss of numerous lives. In our own country, there's continued clashes and tensions between First Nations and Indigenous communities and others in our country. And then, of course, you're all familiar with 2020 and the ongoing protests and riots over the issues that took place recently and go back several years and decades in the United States. So we can speak of group examples of clashes and tensions. We could also talk about individual examples. Individuals are important. And I've been around long enough, and I've talked with enough people, and I've lived on this planet long enough not to be unaware of discrimination levied against various people groups. This week I took some time to speak to members of our leadership in our church, people who are serving in higher levels of leadership, just asking questions about their circumstances as well as considering my own. One who has much darker skin than I do talked about having been called the N-word several times. Another person with skin of the color of mine talked about being just inadvertently labeled as a racist without just cause. Speaking to a couple people in our church who come from Mennonite backgrounds, stories of being attacked on a basketball court just because they're Mennonite, being made fun of for physical features, being told they're not as important as others. I even remember back in the 1980s, as a poor kid from cooperative housing complexes wanting to get my first job and going to the unemployment center, and this is the first time I ever even heard this language, being told that I really wasn't going to get a job because I wasn't part of a visible minority. And I had to kind of go home and figure out what does that even mean. So in both group settings and in individual settings, there's many people in our world who have been discriminated against or murdered or called names or pushed aside because of the pigment of their skin, the language that they speak, the shape of their nose, the texture of their hair, the size of their ears, etc. And I'm sure all of us right out of the gates would recognize that these are atrocities. And I'm sure that many of you can tell your own stories to various degrees of challenges you or those whom you love have experienced. 
So the next question then is, who do we turn to for perspective and response? How about Facebook? Do we just get on and debate back and forth on Facebook? Is that what solves the issues? Is that where we're going to get a lot of meaningful information? Maybe some. Do we turn to social justice movements? Not necessarily knowing who their leaders ultimately are, or who's funding them, or if you follow the trail of their history back, what their truest agenda is, or how committed they are to comprehensive justice, or whether or not they even acknowledge the existence of a creator, or whether or not they've been influenced by Darwinian evolutionary racial theory. These are questions for us to consider. Do we turn to them? Do we turn to our favorite news station? Who do you trust? CBC? CNN? Fox? In case you haven't noticed, they all have their own political bent and are guilty at times of veering away from reporting the facts and acting more like elected politicians. Where do you turn for perspective and hope? Do you turn to your own ethnicity? Do you only do that which benefits your ethnicity? Do you only preach or teach sermons which benefit your ethnicity? Do you only speak to issues which are validated by your own experiences? Do you only respond to issues when they become popular and mainstream? Now there is validity in some of this. But one of the things that I've observed which should concern us all is that increasingly even people in our own churches would receive an A plus as social media and media theologians and a D minus at best as biblical theologians. Because when you listen to them speak about these issues, they're not referencing scripture. They're not speaking about biblical categories. They're talking about studies and statistics and data and personal experiences and various theories out there, some of which may have some truth to them, to be sure. But you don't hear them talking about the Bible. And so I would suggest that, unfortunately, many Christians today are only theoretical believers in the authority of Scripture. But where God wants to take us is to become practical, practical believers in the authority of Scripture. So I want to take us back into the Bible, and I want to present four biblical truths that all have a bearing on how we conceive of issues of race, how we respond to issues of race, how we process issues of race. And these are going to be helpful things for us to remind ourselves of. So first point is based upon the teachings of both Acts 17 and Genesis chapter 3. And that is this. There are no races. Nope. There are no races. There is one race. One race and one race only. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 20 we're told that Eve is the foremother of all living things, meaning humans, of course. If you're a human, you can trace your lineage back to Adam and Eve. Now, commenting on that, 
The writer Luke in Acts 17, 26 told us, and he, that is God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Did you hear the word of the Lord on this? There is one race. We do not look the same, of course. I don't even look exactly the same as my own children, my own brothers and sisters. We all look a little bit different. Some people look significantly, in our view, more different than other people. But if you look at the Bible, there are no races. It's never mentioned in the Bible, different races. The Bible only speaks of different nations and their respective boundaries. So you ask, well, what does the Bible then, what language does the Bible use to describe people who come from different tribes or nations or people groups? The Bible uses words like ethnos. That's not an English word, but you can hear the English derivative in that. Ethnos. There are different ethnic groups. But there is only one race of people. One blood, one foremother, one forefather. We are all made in the image and likeness of God. And lest you make the mistake of thinking of yourself as being of some pure race, do a little DNA test and you'll discover that you and every one of my listeners today is actually a sort of composite of various tribes and various nations and various people groups, various ethnos from throughout history. You think, well, how is this relevant? Well, when we read the Bible, we need to understand that the Bible speaks of our origins as being from Adam and Eve. And when we go back to the Adam and Eve account in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we're told that humanity is made in the image and likeness of God. Like, okay, well, whatever. There's still different, different people groups. Why can't we call them races? Well, the problem with this kind of thinking, which, by the way, is largely the result of Darwinian evolutionary theory. It was Darwin and some of his contemporaries, like Dr. Kuhn, that came up with these theories, there are different races. In some theories, there were five different races of people, the Caucasoids, and the, they called them Mongoloids, and the Negroids. Some had five categories, some had three categories. We were taught this in history class back in the late 80s and, and, and early 90s of high school. But it's not a biblical construct that there are different races in the world. And language matters. Language shapes the way that we think about the world. And if you've been taught, oh, there's different races in the world, and even on a scientific level then, you believe in the philosophical notion of race ism, then you create for yourself the perfect milieu for racism. So race-ism is the precursor to racism. If we insist on separate races, 
then we will perceive of the world in light of our differences. And that leads to feuding and self-protection. Again, racism as a philosophical construct leads to racism as a discriminatory act between me and the other group, the those out there. And unfortunately in the Western world, again, because we're less informed by Scripture and more informed by secular notions, most of us perceive of the world in this way. That there's these different races out there. There's all these different groups and it leaks through in our language. Now I was speaking this week to a friend of mine and I won't tell you anything about his appearance, but I'll just tell you what he said. He said, I don't think of myself as black. I don't think of myself as black. And I said to him, that's interesting because I don't really think of myself, like perceive or conceive of myself as white. It's just not really part of my identity. It's not part of my thinking, and frankly, I'm not white. The pages of my Bible are white. You can clearly see my hand. I'm not white. I'm something other than white. My skin tone is different than many. But I don't go around thinking of myself predominantly as different than others, and nor did my dear friend. Now, in response to this, there is an ongoing dialogue in our society about what, what is called colorblindness. And colorblindness is basically this notion that says, well, that's, that's wrong. Because if you, if you fail to recognize different colors, if you say, well, I'm colorblind, I don't know what color you are, what you're actually doing is you're contributing to racism, and you're like, well, how am I doing that? because you're not acknowledging that certain groups are being discriminated against. And my response to that is no, you're misunderstanding. I, I fully acknowledge that there are people, groups, that there are nations, there are tribes in our world that look different than me, that act different than me, that speak a different language than me, that have a different skin tone than me, that are disadvantaged for many reasons, but one of the reasons why many are disadvantaged is because of what we would call discrimination, hatred, and prejudice. I fully recognize that. But my comment and my friend's comment is not about saying, oh, we're colorblind. We don't acknowledge the fact that we have different skin tones. That's not the point at all. The point is that color identity Let's coin a new term. Color identity, defining yourself by your pigment, is not biblical, and it actually contributes to racism. It doesn't solve it. It doesn't fix it. So one doesn't need to be colorblind. One can acknowledge the discrimination that certain groups of people experience but nor does one need to put their identity in their color, in their ethnicity. I mean, if you think about the language that's used in our 
our culture, it, it doesn't help. It doesn't help at all. Even when we talk about people of color, like what? Like I'm not a person of color? Like what are we talking about here? This kind of language pushes people to find their identity, folks. Invisible issues instead of in substantive issues. And it begs the question, where is your identity found? God forbid if my identity is found in my race, in my ethnos, in my color, or in, in the eyes of some, in my lack of color. God forbid that I permit that kind of rotten thinking, unbiblical thinking, evolutionary thinking, secular thinking to be part of my dialogue and my vocabulary. I reject that. I reject it. Secondly, the Bible teaches us that physical appearance is irrelevant to relationships. So let's be pressed a little bit more on this. When we go way back in the scriptures to 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. When God was providing the boundaries for his people to select a king, here's what he said. Do not look. Can I say that again? Do not look. Do not look. Do not look on his appearance. Oh, you're a racist. You don't acknowledge the plight of people. I acknowledge the plight of people. You should acknowledge the plight of people. But let's go back to what the Bible says. What does the Bible say about physical appearance? What does it say? Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now this is a powerful piece of scripture because it actually forbids us from defining our value, our worth, our significance by our outward appearance. So some of you are like, well, that's how, that's how I was raised. That, that's part of my identity. Well, you need to correct that. You need to correct that if you're going to be submissive to the word of God. Because when it comes to your identity, you need to understand that your identity is not found in your appearance, nor should you judge others based on their appearance. Whether their appearance is like yours or unlike yours. Whether their appearance is similar to people who have been oppressed or similar to those who are oppressors. God does not look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. So why is it then that so many believers in Jesus Christ think that it's acceptable and appropriate to go around defining themselves their identity by things like their 
ethnos when the Bible explicitly forbids it. Man judges outward appearance. It's interesting, as you flip through the pages of the Bible, one startling truth that you'll notice is the Bible is astonishingly disinterested in skin color. You might have a mental image in your mind of Adam and Eve's skin color. It's never mentioned. Of Moses' skin color? Never mentioned. Of David's skin color? Of Jesus' skin color? Never mentioned. It's never mentioned. There's only a couple references in Scripture to skin color, and they, they relate to people who have been out in the fields working and have been darkened by the sun, but it doesn't t- tell us what shade. The Bible is astonishingly disinterested in that which seems to dominate societal discussion. It just doesn't even talk about it. it. Talks about tribes, nations, different ethnos, but never reduces people down to their pigment. You know, when I was a child, we used to sing a song. It goes like this: Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Now, the intention of that song was to communicate to children at their youngest ages that God loves all people. But perhaps one of the errors in that song, not to throw it under the bus completely, Perhaps one of the errors in that song was to go beyond biblical categories, beyond biblical categories of describing humanity, and instilling within the mind of children from a very young age that there's people that are black and white and yellow and red. I've never met anybody who's black, white, yellow, or red. The reality is, objectively speaking, we're none of those colors. We're various shades of brown, essentially. We're much more alike than we are different. We're various shades of one color. We're not black and white and red and yellow, these colors that contrast each other, but this is the language we use, and it's even in our Christian music. And it shapes people's mindsets to think that we are all very, very different. We're not. We are of one race. And our gracious God does not look at outward appearances. Somebody said recently that even the, the phenotypes, the, the genetic differences that exist between like categories of people, the greatest differences between people in, in, in reference to their racial differences is like 0.012% of their genetic makeup. It's minuscule. It's minuscule. Now here are some reactions I've heard to the teaching that I'm giving you this morning. Well, ignoring racism is racism. I'm not ignoring racism. If you mean by that, ignoring injustice is unjust, you're right. You should never ignore injustice. 
And we should never be so naive to think that, well, certain groups, you know, they're not subject to greater racism than other groups. Of course, depending on the time in history and the culture and the circumstances, I've given you some historical examples earlier, certain groups experience more, quote-unquote, discrimination and hatred. Of course that's true. Not arguing that at all. But actually, I would argue biblically that speaking of races contributes to racism because they do not exist. We are of one race, divided up, of course, into different nations and tribes, ethnos. I want to ask you this question then. Have you fallen into the trap? Hear me clearly now. Have you fallen into the trap of describing and categorizing people in ways the Bible does not permit? Using the world's language. Using the world's categories. Using the world's descriptions. Have you fallen into the trap? Many of us have. And we need to make a biblical correction to that. If it's not in the Bible, we need to repent of that. So then the question comes up, well, what caused this big split in the first place? Like, how is it that humanity was divided into all these ethnos, all these different people groups, all these different nations and tongues and tribes? Well, going back to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 11, we find the answer to that question. Here's what it says in Genesis 11. Verses 1 to 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Notice again, in describing different people groups, never refers to skin tone. Never. Talks about different languages or similar language, different nations. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen, a form of tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower and a tower with its top to the heavens. Now, why did they do this? It tells us why. And let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, here's how God responds, and God came down, which is supposed to be funny. The people are building this tower up, 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 up to the heavens. It's impressive if you're looking up. But if you're looking down from the perspective of God, it's kind of small. So God comes down, showing his grandeur over all things. It's described again that way in a few verses. Let us build for ourselves. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, equals rebellion against God. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and therefore confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the whole earth, 
and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Now, this is an incredible foundational passage to our understanding of why the world is the way it is. And what we're receiving here is the teaching that it's our unity, our attempts at unity, in the absence of the recognition of God, which is increasingly the case in the world today. We want to all be united, but we don't want to recognize God. It's our unity that led to our mutiny against God. And so God, as a form of concession to humble us in a broken world, divided us up so that we might be subject to him. And once divided, I mean, it wouldn't have taken very long for people to form different ethnos, different people groups, and to take with them different aspects of the human genetic code, and to, over the generations, start to physically look a little bit different than other groups because they had been segregated for multiple generations. Unfortunately, then, what we learn is that nationhood is a part of the broken world. It is something that we mourn because it wasn't really and isn't God's ideal. It wasn't God's original ideal that we'd be divided up into nations. It's not God's heavenly ideal as we shall see shortly in Scripture. But it's because of our unity, which actually was done in mutiny against God, that God divided up the world into different groups. People say, well, the answer to all this, the answer to all this brokenness is globalism, is radical reunification of the whole world. It's like, let's go back to Babel, pre-Babel times. No. The solution is submission to God, the God who should never have been rebelled against in the first place before the Babel incident took place. You see, without God, world unity, globalism, or any attempt to help everybody just get along actually leads to further godlessness. Look at the state of the world today. Increased efforts at global unity in response to prejudice and discrimination. But it doesn't actually advance the cause as it leads to, leads to greater godlessness, which leads to greater rebellion and greater mutiny against God and an increase in global disturbances. This explains the cause of division. It doesn't mean that we celebrate nationhood like, man, this is awesome. No, it's part of life in a broken world. It doesn't mean we celebrate it. We, we kind of mourn it. Kind of like we mourn death. It's, it's an inevitable part of life in a broken and sinful system. How is this relevant? Well, it's relevant because global attempts to find a within the created order will not work. I'll say that again. Global attempts to find a fix to disunity and discrimination and prejudice in a broken world will 
not work. Now, I did some reading this week on just trying to understand what are some, what's some of the advice that the experts are offering to like fix the issues of injustice, especially as it relates to race. Here's the kind of stuff that you're hearing. You've heard it too. None of it really surprised me. This is what I'm hearing. I've heard this many times before. What we need to do is think more critically about racism. What we need to do is nurture greater inclusivity. What we need to do is nurture greater resilience in children. What we need to do is recognize our privilege. What we need to do is validate others' feelings. What we need to do is to call out racist jokes. What we need to do is to create laws that fix wealth disparities. What we need to do is shop at minority businesses. Now, you've heard these things too. These things are not necessarily bad, but they are naive, very naive. And I would add to that, ignorant. They will not work. They haven't worked up till now. In a culture that actually believes in progress, this is one of the greatest lies, especially in the West, that we're progressing. We can fix everything. No, we're not progressing. We're really not. Look at the state of the world today. It's a, it's a wreck. We're not progressing. Human attempts to fix injustice has not worked for thousands of years, and it ain't going to start working in 2020. The, this kind of advice is rooted in the underlying lie of human progress. And many of us have grown up believing in human progress, and it's a lie. And it's a debilitating lie. So we spend all this energy and all this time trying to bring about this fine list of pieces of advice to fix the problem, and another generation dies, and it hasn't been fixed. And another one comes and goes, and it hasn't been fixed, and the fury and the rage increases. We're like, why can't we fix this? Because of ignorance. Because of naivety. Here's what the Bible demands. The Bible demands a pessimistic view of humanity's ability to get along. So does this mean we contribute to the division or we ignore it? No, 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 no. But we have a word and we have a solution that does work. And it ain't naive and it certainly ain't ignorant. We bring the gospel to bear on it. You know what the gospel does? The gospel invites us to surrender to the original creator that we rebelled against from in Babel that caused all these problems in the first place. The gospel invites us to surrender ourselves to the benevolent creator of the world who is up, who we can never reach with our little towers, our institutions, our clever little tactics, political maneuvers and laws. It invites us to surrender ourselves to the original creator 
in order that he might, by his grace, eventually take us back to Eden, the new heavens and the new earth, to our pre-Babel, pre-fall conditions, to a place where there is absolute unity and joy among all people. Now, where do we find that? We find it in the book of Acts. We find it in the book of Revelation. See, what we need to understand is that it is our heavenly ethic that unites us. Like, what can bring about, unite, what can unite us, Pastor Aaron? Like, what can bring us about if, if the world systems don't work? What can I do? It's our heavenly ethic. It's our heavenly ethic. It's our vision of that which is to come that needs to inform our current reality. In Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, the Bible says, and Peter opened his mouth and he said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Talk about transformation. This man was a Jew conceived of himself as being part of a nation that was a special recipient of God's grace and mercy under the old covenant, and indeed they were. But the gospel changed him, and he understood from the time of the Great Commission onward that God was going to radically alter the face of the planet through the gospel, and that people from all nations and tribes and languages would one day bow the knee Acknowledge the creator who we rebelled from in the fall and again in Babel. Who would renew us and restore us into a true universal nation of God-loving and God-fearing people. If we go ahead to the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verse 9, speaking of the eschaton, the end of all things. John the Apostle says, after this I looked and behold, what did he see? A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. We have both a historical and an eschatological vision here of what God has been doing and will ultimately do through the proclamation of the gospel which calls all people to surrender themselves to the lordship of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ himself. And may his name be praised above all names. The passage does not teach that all people will get to heaven, but amazingly it does teach that many from all nations will be part of the eternal all. And it is this heavenly vision that informs the believer how to live out the values of the kingdom in the here and now. Yeah, we're not quite there yet, but it is this heavenly vision of the future that informs the now. Let the future inform your now let the gospel message inform your now 
And so let me offer you several points of application in response to what we've heard today from these four different biblical statements. Take these home with you. Number one, it's always better to defend others than defend yourself. Why? Because this protects us from the possible sin of selfish intent and self-advancement. So as you seek to live out the justice message of the gospel, don't leave people who have been victims of injustice to speak for themselves. Speak on their behalf. The motive for doing so is not to be a virtue signaler. The motive for doing so is to be Christ to them and to the world. Secondly, show empathy. Empathy is expressed through asking good questions, through mourning, and through seeking to understand. But let's not misunderstand this point. Understanding does not require agreement and in fact can be dangerous. Because while understanding is necessary to give a response, and without understanding, our response will be limited, understanding enables us, having empathized, to then affirm a truth statement that a person has made or an experience that they've had. But it also opens up the door for us to perhaps correct a lie, a societal lie, a political lie, a theological lie that they have received about their identity, their value, or their experiences. Third, do not falter in your resolve to be a person of justice. Justice is not a movement. And justice is not a moment. Justice is a lifelong commitment that the people of God make in light of our eternal hope. Fourth, and notably, very practical, exercise extreme caution in hitching your wagon to any movement that is not gospel-centered in nature. There's a lot of movements out there, but they're not necessarily gospel-centered. You might feel a certain societal pressure, a certain push, a certain peer pressure. I've got to hitch my wagon to this particular movement if I'm going to stand for this particular injustice. Be very careful. And why do I issue this caution? Because while I fully support free speech, and I fully support protesting. I do not trust the world's systems or the world's morality, and nor should you. I do not trust movements that are not anchored in Jesus Christ. And to use political jargon, and this is political jargon, not my language, 
someone else's language, but introduced to me recently by a dear friend. I do not want to be anyone else's useful idiot. Whereby I stand for justice, but down the road I realize I'm being manipulated for nefarious purposes. The church of Jesus Christ is big enough and well-equipped enough and intelligent enough and informed enough that we can protest, we can speak out, and we can lobby, and we can be effective without necessarily assuming or trusting that when the world says something that sounds Christian, that the intentions of the organization necessarily align with the word of God. Fifth, injustice requires an emotional response. Injustice requires an emotional response. And that means that when there is an injustice, we don't just go all intellectual on people. We never check our brain. We never shut her down. But injustice does require an emotional response. It's necessary. It's a passionate response to an experience. But let's understand this. Truth, not emotions, bring us through to a place of clarity and perspective and response. This means that we should not assume motives, nor should we assume that motives are accurate or motives are helpful. We stick with the facts and we react accordingly. In other words, I could say it this way. Every experience we ever have requires some interpretation. And as people of truth, we can help people to interpret their experiences. We can interpret our own experiences in light of the word of God. And this brings perspective and this brings blessing and this brings clarity six rules and laws don't fix hearts but they can be used to restrain evil and as such let's champion laws and rules not that are a result of political posturing or political correctness but let's champion laws and rules that actually reflect natural law, moral law. Now, one of the beautiful things about living in Canada for all its issues and disparities is that if you're familiar with our charter, the charter actually advocates for natural and moral law. Let me read for you several statements out of the charter that I think are especially relevant to this situation. The charter of our country recognizes the supremacy of God. It does. And that's the Christian God, by the way with one of the Psalms being referenced in our coat of arms, our charter recognizes the God of the Bible as being supreme. It recognizes the supremacy of God. It recognizes the rule of law. It recognizes freedom of thought and expression. It recognizes freedom of peaceful assembly. 
It recognizes the right to life, liberty, and security of person. It recognizes the right to be presumed innocent until proven guilty according to law in a fair and public hearing. Now, you may or may not be a student of history, but don't make the mistake of just being a student of the moment. If you're a student of history, you'll understand that our forebears from various countries, various nations, brought to this land their experiences of injustice and tyranny and corrupt judicial systems. And these words were placed on paper for our protection and our benefit. And if we are students of history, we will understand that these things are things we should stand for. We should stand for people's right to peacefully assemble, whether it's to worship or to protest. We should stand for also the rule of law and never say, well, right now that's not important. It's always important. Our forebears died for this stuff. We should always acknowledge the supremacy of God. Without God, there is only chaos. And I don't think I need to build the argument that that's what's happening and this is the ultimate reason why. So while rules and laws won't fix hearts, these rules and laws which we should champion, even as the people of God, because they reflect biblical law and moral law and natural law, we champion these not because they're going to fix people's hearts, but because by championing these things, even when they're not popular, even when they don't seem quite sufficient, even when the circumstances of life might tempt us to push a few aside, these things ultimately restrain evil. And this is a benefit to everyone. And sixth, or seventh rather, ground, ground your identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are not your shade of brown. That is not who you are. That's not your identity. You are not your hair texture or your lack of hair. That's not your identity. You, hear me, you are made in the image and likeness of God. Act like it and ground your identity in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the precious, beautiful blood of the Lord Jesus Christ who shed his blood in order that we might ultimately be recon reconciled with him and as a massive added benefit be reconciled one to another. This is the blessed message of the gospel. Ground your identity in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible speaks of two groupings of people, and it uses the language of Gentile and Jew metaphorically to typify those who are in relationship or out of relationship. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says, Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, verse 12, remember 
that you were at a time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world, but now. Now we have a different identity. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. What a beautiful word. He himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The wall of hostility that separates us from God, access to God, symbolized in the temple, has been removed. And we now all have access, equal access to Jesus Christ. And the heavenly vision is that together we are one people, one spiritual nation under God, composed of people from various tribes and tongues and nations who together find our collective eternal identity in the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our hostility to one another is a result of our hostility to God. It's a consequence of our rebellion and our mutiny against God. Our greatest hope for unity, however, is that with one another and with, with God, we will one be, day be united unto the sovereign lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's in Christ and through the transformative power of the gospel which we must proclaim without apology in the public square. Without apology in the public square. Never back down. Our greatest hope is through the proclamation of the gospel in Christ, hostility to God, and our all too common hostility to one another will be eternally resolved. Here now the healing words of the scriptures.